welcome to Georgia's Poetry Workshop. I hope you've had a great week and got a lot of writing done. I've just got back from a trip to Madeira. It was awesome. Did lots of surfing, which is one of my favourite sports, and really just had a bit of a relaxing time. So it was really nice to have a little break. I thought I'd be writing loads while I was away, but actually I seemed to only do my writing when I was on the move. And I realised that most of my best poems, the ones I'm most proud of, I write uh, while I'm on public transport. So trains typically, and this time on a plane, and also sort of compose them while I'm running. So it seems like movement is really important in terms of writing. Um, This got me thinking a little bit about poets that I know who do run. Uh, I think the other day it was Kim Moore who tweeted that she just did a half marathon. So that's amazing. And then I was at a writing retreat a few years ago and Helen Mort did a, a sort of lecture about her project called the Singing Glacier or Singing Glacier. And what I found really interesting about it was also how she talked about running alongside her project and how running helps her to think about her work and her art. And so I've I've got her new collection, The Illustrated Woman, and I thought, well, why don't I have a little look and see if she's written anything about running? And I found this uh, poem, or a part of her poem, it's the sixth part of a poem called Augmentation. And the part is entitled Flight, and it involves the speaker having a run. And what I thought was really uh, cool about this is that you hear the pace of the runner throughout the poem, and it's sort of emphasised by repetition. So I'm just going to read this to you to start with flight. I am running down the spine of Sheffield, pushing my boy in his huge buggy. He peers out as if he explains me and will protect us from the hecklers who spat at my heels when I jogged street after street as a teenager. You've got no tits. You've got no tits. You've got no tits. You've got no tits. These mud and birches days I have outrun them, joined with the frame and wheels, flesh of my flesh. I am not the arrow, but the curve of the bow. Look at us. Look at us now. Look how fast we go. I love this kind of reflection on the past and the positivity of this change in this moment. And this is kind of what running does. It it helps us reflect and think about things. And I run without music. So I get this kind of beat going. And when the pace is right, you can just keep going and going and going. Um, And I often sort of count as well, uh, which I don't know if many other people do that. But sometimes it's nice to have a count because it it sort of um, lengthens your breathing, I think and makes it easier to run. So I often come up with ideas through the rhythm that I'm running at. And 
reading this is is quite inspiring really when I consider the importance of running in my life and I was thinking about how many poets you know do run and also why that's such an interesting thing and like poetry running is quite a solo activity as is sort of surfing so it'd be really cool to hear what other poets do in terms of sports that they might do or hobbies or activities that influence their art and support them. So thinking so much about running and traveling had me going back in time (laughs) to my dissertation that I wrote about 10 years ago. And I was really proud of it at the time because I wrote about the philosophy of walking and how walking impacts our writing. And the essayist that I focused on is called William Hazlitt. Now, William Hazlitt was a romantic writer, but he didn't really enjoy walking. (laughs) And he wrote a lot of uh, nonfiction. But what was really interesting about him is that he actually documented the walks, the the walking styles, the actual gait of two of the most famous romantic writers, Coleridge and Wordsworth. Coleridge is my one of my absolute faves. So I'm going to read a bit from him and I'll also read something from Wordsworth shortly. So the first poem, of course, that I have to... I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read parts of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It's absolutely amazing. One of my favourite poems of all time. I just love the sort of folktaleness style of it and the fantastical aspects. And I've always been really intrigued by this wedding guest. I think they're the most important character, actually. And I have a, I could talk all day about, about that. Um, I do, if you enjoy, if you want to hear the poem read really, really beautifully, there's an amazing recording of a whole bunch of celebrities reading the poem. It's on a website called ancientmarinerbigread.com. And really worth a listen, honestly. It's it's fabulous. Um, really good for long car journeys, trust me. <laughs> so, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, part one. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long grey beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stopst thou me? The bridegroom's doors are opened wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayst hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand. There was a ship, quoth he. Hold off, unhand me, greybeard loon. soon's his hand drop he. He holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still and listens like a three years child. The mariner hath his will. The wedding guest sat on a stone. 
he cannot choose but hear. And thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. The ship was cheered, the harbour cleared, merrily did we drop. Below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. The sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he, and he shone bright, and on the right went down into the sea. Higher and higher every day, till over the mast at noon, the wedding guest here beat his breast, for he heard the loud bassoon. The bride hath paced into the hall, red as a rose is she, nodding their heads before her goes the merry minstrelsy. The wedding guest he beat his breast, yet he cannot choose but hear, and thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. And now the storm-blast came, and he was tyrannous and strong. He struck with his o'ertaking wings, and chased us south along. With sloping masts and dipping prow, as who pursued with yell and blow, still treads the shadow of his foe, and forward bends his head, the ship drove fast, loud roared the blast, and southward I we fled. I'll pause there. It's a very long piece, but that's just the introduction to the mariners beginning his to tell his story to the wedding guest. I've got um, a version from Dover Thrift Editions. It was actually looking at the inscription. A a wedding present to my parents, <laughs> which is the copy that I have. So that's so lovely. Um, and the next poem that I'm going to read is from Wordsworth. And this is a longer Wordsworth poem as well. So I'm just going to read a little section. It's called Lines Written a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour. July, 13th of July, 1798. Rather a long title. It's also known as Tintern Abbey. Five years have passed, five summers, with the length of five long winters, and again I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a sweet inland murmur. Once again do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs, which on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of a more deep seclusion, and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. The day is come when I again repose here, under this dark sycamore, and view these plots of cottage ground, these orchard tufts, which, at this season, with their unripe fruits, among the woods and copses lose themselves, nor, with their green and simple hue, disturb the wild green landscape. Once again I see these hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sportive wood run wild, these pastoral farms green to the very door, and wreaths of smoke sent up in silence from among the trees with some uncertain notice, as might seem 
of vagrant dwellers in the houseless woods, or of some hermit's cave, where by his fire the hermit sits alone. I think this is a really lovely poem, and just this kind of listing of all these beautiful aspects of nature. And what I find interesting about these two, this also, um, this po- the, those two poems um, were published in lyrical ballads together, um, I believe. And so it's really fascinating to compare the two styles. So we've got Coleridge, who writes about these incredible storms and these characters that he's created who are quite phantom-like. And then we've got Wordsworth, who is more sort of, who looks more in depth at at reality um, and chooses to kind of ponder the world around him. Whereas Coleridge thinks about life, but through the lens of something that almost mirrors a fairy tale. And so thinking about these sort of styles, I'd like to share with you what Hazlitt wrote about the way that they walk. On Coleridge, he wrote, I observed that he continually crossed me on the way by shifting from one side of the footpath to the other. This struck me as an odd movement, but I did not at that time connect it with any instability of purpose or involuntary change of principle, as I have done since. He seemed unable to walk in a straight line. And I just love this idea of someone kind of walking and talking and sort of zigzagging up the path. (laughs) And he he liked to walk on, um, you know, in quite rough terrain. And so I feel, I like to think about how this might have inspired the way that he wrote his work and the way that he thought and about all of the different um, exciting make-believe moments that uh, come up in his poetry and, and how that kind of ins- inspired him to write those things. Hazlitt then compares this uh, the the walks of Coleridge and Wordsworth. He says Coleridge's manner is more full, animated, and varied. Wordsworth's more equable, sustained, and internal. The one might. St- be termed more dramatic, the other more lyrical. Coleridge has told me that he himself liked to compose in walking over uneven ground or breaking through the straggling branches of copsewood, where it was Wordsworth always wrote, if he could, walking up and down a straight gravel walk, or in some spot where the con- continuity of his verse met with no collateral interruption. So Hazlitt here explicitly suggests that the way in which these writers walk helps their composition. And so what's really interesting is how walking therefore um, impacts our thinking. It, it, it changes the way that we think and therefore the way that we write and our, our poetry. What I really love about this description is how we've got Coleridge being described as dramatic and Wordsworth as lyrical and how 
that Coleridge's walk is quite dramatic, sort of zigzagging and going over this um, uneven ground. And then he writes about very dramatic things like this incredible mariner who has this insane adventure and journey and encounters frightening creatures and death. And then Wordsworth likes to write in kind of blank verse. And so it's 10 syllables per line, very, um, usually in iambic pentameter rhythm, like Shakespeare, da-dum, 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 da-dum. And so we have someone who sounds in that way, very, very strict in terms of the, the rhythms and that kind of sense of a a pacing. You can imagine him sort of pacing up and down on top of a hill writing his work, whereas Coleridge, we have these really great rhymes um, and a sort of jauntiness to it, whereas there's a qu- quite a bit more strictness and and restraint in in Wordsworth's work, despite the fact that he's sort of writing about um, trying to be unrestrained. So he he writes about this this kind of battle between um, fan- fancy and imagination, and kind of the restrictiveness of of being human. So it's it's such a such a an exciting idea to think about how how a th- our thoughts are, are so impacted by the way that we move. There's one more. I, I mean, there's a lot more I could sort of talk about really with this, and I'd love to sort of dip into it, particularly as this is um, something that I really enjoy thinking about is the philosophy of walking and how walking kind of impacts our thoughts. But there is one more poet that I wanted to share with you today who I think goes under the radar quite a lot. I don't think we hear many poets, female poets from the Romantic period discussed at all and certainly teaching the curriculum at secondary schools. We never really get the opportunity to talk about them and although I don't have any any kind of evidence about the way in which she walks I just like to share her poetry anyway and this is Anna Letitia Barbold's A Summer Evening's Meditation there's an epigraph too by Young one sun by day by night ten thousand shine Tis past. The sultry tyrant of the south has spent his short-lived rage. More grateful hours move silent on. The skies no more repel the dazzled sight, but with mild maiden beams of tempered light invite the cherished eye to wander o'er their sphere, where, hung aloft, Dian's bright crescent, like a silver bow new strung in heaven, lifts high its beamy horns, impatient for the night, and seems to push her brother down the sky. Fair Venus shines, even in the eye of day, 
with sweetest beam propitious shines and shakes a trembling flood of softened radiance from her dewy locks. The shadows spread apace, while meek and Eve, her cheek yet warm with blushes, slow retires through the Hesperian gardens of the west and shuts the gates of day. Tis now the hour when contemplation from her sunless haunts the cool damp grotto or the lonely depth of unpierced woods, where, wrapped in solid shade, she mused away the gaudy hours of noon and fed on thoughts unripened by the sun, moves forward, and with radiant finger points to yon blue concave swelled by breath divine, where, one by one, the living eyes of heaven awake, quick kindling o'er the face of ether, one boundless blaze, Ten thousand trembling fires and dancing lustres, where the unsteady eye, restless and dazzled, wanders unconfined o'er all this field of glories, spacious field, and worthy of the master. I'm going to pause there. My favourite bit of this, I just absolutely, I think it's so wonderful, so beautiful. And my favourite part is... When, when, I might just read it, I'm going to skip out a little bit and just read a little bit more. Seized in thought, on fancy's wild and roving wing I sail, from the green borders of the peopled earth, and the pale moon, her duteous fair attendant, from solitary Mars, from the vast orb of Jupiter, whose huge gigantic bulk dances in ether like the lightest leaf, to the dim verge, the suburbs of the system, where cheerless Saturn mist her watery moons, girt with a lucid zone, majestic sits in gloomy grandeur, like an exiled queen amongst her weeping handmaids. Fearless thence I launch into the trackless deeps of space, where burning round ten thousand suns appear of elder beam, which ask no leave to shine of our terrestrial star nor borrow light from the proud regent of our scanty day. Sons of the morning, firstborn of creation, and only less than him who marks their track and guides their fiery wheels. Here must I stop, or is there aught beyond? What hand unseen impels me onward through the glowing orbs of habitable nature far remote, to the dread confines of eternal night, to solitudes of vast, unpeopled space, the deserts of creation, wide and wild, where embryo systems and unkindled suns sleep in the womb of chaos. Fancy droops, and thought astonished stops her bold career. I'm just going to stop there now. <laughs> oh my gosh, this podcast has gone on a lot longer than usual. <laughs> um... I think this moment where she lists she lists all of these kind of amazing ideas about space and then fancy droops and thought astonished stops her bold career. It is sort of this moment where she questions how far her imagination can go. And it's just that wonderful idea of being staring at the sky and staring at space and being like, wow, 
what is out there? And can I even imagine it? You know, how far can I think about what could be beyond the world? So I just, I find this poem really exciting because of the kind of questions that arise from it. We better have our our um, free writing time. So as usual, we're going to have a little pause for some free writing. If you have not heard the podcast before, free writing is where you spend about five to seven minutes or seven to 10 minutes. Um, I, I usually say seven to 10 minutes having a little bit of time to empty your mind and write anything you'd like to down. I always give a prompt as well, just in case you're struggling a little bit and you want to use the prompt to get you started. So the word, the the prompt, uh, the word for the prompt today is storm blast, double barreled, storm dash blast, taken directly from the rhyme of the ancient mariner. So when you hear the bells in a second, pause the podcast and come back for the final prompt. Welcome back. If you did have that little pause there, I like to always take this opportunity after the free writing to say that if you are enjoying these podcasts and you are able to, it would be wonderful if you could become one of my patrons and support me with making these podcasts and creating art and also supporting others who might not be able to afford poetry workshops, but who access the podcast instead. My Patreon is patreon.com forward slash George's Poetry Workshop. Thank you very, very much in advance for any support that you can give. The final prompt today is based on the romantic poets that we've been thinking about. So Coleridge, Wordsworth and Barbold. And what I think would be a really fun activity would be to take a picture of something that inspired you, inspires you or look through your albums and find one that you have maybe been meaning to write about but haven't got around to yet. And inspired by Barbold's ideas of looking beyond, have a go at looking at your image and then writing or imagining something that happens after that picture. So not actually doing ekphrasis, not actually writing about the picture itself, but writing about what happens, what has happened after the picture has been taken and to perhaps not write about what really happened, to make something up. So you could do something in a fairy tale style like Coleridge or include a entirely new event and go from there. Another prompt, another idea to try out perhaps later in the week is to go out and consider how your own way of moving influences your way of thinking and therefore your poetry and ensure 
that the intention for you moving is for you to just let your mind be free. So not thinking about going anywhere to do any kind of job or whatever it might be, but actually ensuring that you're focusing on thinking about perhaps writing a poem, but letting your mind just run free with it and see where it takes you. You know, whether it's going out for a run or wheeling your wheelchair or just going for a walk, whatever it might be, consider how your gait or movement impacts your own writing. It's a really interesting thing to consider because a lot of the time, as I said, the pace that I run at um, creates the rhythm for a piece of writing and or helps me with a concept that I've been thinking about. I think, oh, I can't think of a first line and suddenly I'm going do, 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 do. And it comes to me just out of, seemingly out of nowhere, but of course we know that there's this whole conscious, unconscious mind working together and building to this very important moment where you get this first idea so have a go at those i hope you've enjoyed the podcast today and i look forward to seeing you next week many thanks as always to portamento for creating the music for this podcast see you next time <laughs>